We are looking at Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something. And in chapter 1, DeYoung argued that many people are sitting still in life, not making moves, not making decisions, not, not getting to the, just the process of living life. And it's because they say they're just waiting for God to show them uh, what to do. Chapter 2, though, DeYoung talks about the fact that when we talk about doing the will of God... The Bible gives us two clear ways to think about the will of God. So, do you guys remember what the two wills are? Can somebody tell me what one of the two wills of God are when the Bible talks about will of God? Okay, divine will. Someone go a little further because everything's divine to some degree. But Will of decree. Good job, guys. Good job. I'm not going to make you use the microphone for these answers. We will use the microphone for other stuff, though. So, will of decree. That is the will of God that must be done and can never, ever be thwarted. Sometimes the will of decree is also called God's sovereign will. Sometimes it's called his secret will, but it's the will of decree. It's that which God will absolutely make happen. It's going to come to pass no matter what. Now, there is a second type of will that DeYoung talks about. Besides the will of decree, what's the second kind of will of God? Will of command. Very good. Also sometimes called will of desire, right? It's what God commands to happen in Scripture. Things like don't be a glutton or whatever. Be nice to your pastor. It's a command, but it's not always followed by people like Kelly. So... It's something God says is right to do, but he will not force it to happen. So will of decree, what God will force to happen by his sovereign power, will of, uh, of desire, or sometimes called will of command, that is what God orders. He says this is how you're supposed to live, but he won't make you do it. That all makes sense so far? And there are many people today who teach a third kind of will of God, a will of direction, let's say. And that is someone saying that God has an individual will of God for you in every personal decision that you make. And what DeYoung is going to argue throughout this book is that that will is not present in Scripture. So that's where we've been in the first two chapters of our book. Now, I want to have us look at something before we look at chapter 2 that may help us. Can I get a reader for Romans 8, 28 and 29? Go, oh, go, go, oh. Got it. Are we ready? Go. Yep. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Thank you. That passage tells us something about the will of God. God will work our lives out for God's glory. Do you guys see that in that text? You see where I would come up with that? But I want you to notice this in that same pair of verses. God does not promise 
anything here about telling you exactly which step to take. He tells us that in the end, we are going to be where he plans for us to be. And where is it that he plans for us to be according to those verses? He's going to work all things together for good because we're called according to his purpose in order that what? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. So do you want to know what the will of God is for you? Even the ultimate decreed will of God is for you? It is that at some point in your life, if you're a Christian, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Are you guys okay with that as the will of God for you? I hope so. All right. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Question. How does the sheep get to green pastures and rest in Psalm 23? How does it get to the green pastures? The Lord leads the sheep to the green pastures. How does the sheep get into the valley of the shadow of death? Say it again, Vanessa. The Lord leads it there too, doesn't it? What then must we know about God's oversight of our lives? God will take us to ease or through hardship out of his sovereign secret will of decree. So should we assume if we listen to God's voice, if we hear God's personal will for our lives, that we're going to have it easy? No. That's not biblical according to anything we know of Scripture. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they talk about the will of God, believe that they can just get the will of God figured out. Their life will be easy. God does not promise that. And that's where we're picking up with chapter 3, a chapter called Directionally Challenged. So, question for y'all. Why is it that you think the will of God among Christians around the country, why is a discussion of the will of God still a hot topic? Why, why, do, why do books keep being written about the will of God? What's your best guess? Just throw some stuff out at me. People are still unsure about what it is, says Russ. Somebody else? We want to be where God wants us to be, and we assume that there's a want for us that we're supposed to find, right? How many Christians do you guys believe? Well, what would you say? Do the majority of Christians believe there's a will they're supposed to find? Or do the majority of Christians think that they're free to do whatever, whatever they want as long as they're inside the commands of God? What's that? 
Yeah, most people have been taught that there's a will that they've got to find, and if they'll just find that will, they'll be in a good place. But if they don't find that will, they're not, right? De Young says this. He asks, why are so many Christians desperate to find out God's plan for their lives? Why are publishers still willing to crank out will of God books like this one, even though there are a bazillion other ones on the market? Why do millions of Christians in this country spend buckets of time and energy waiting for the will of God to be revealed? And why do we fret about the will of God like it's some nuclear warhead pointing at our future happiness? This chapter that we're going to study today, because again, we're taking a slow walk through this. I mean, honestly, last week, Kay solved the problem of the will of God for us. But she was giving you the Cliffs Notes. We're going to go slow and we're going to walk through and unpack this so we can really be ready to deal with it. And this chapter is going to unpack for us five reasons why people might be deeply concerned about knowing the will of God. So if you want to write them down, you can. You don't have to. But the first reason DeYoung gives us for why people might be deeply interested in knowing the will of God is because we want to please God. Right? DeYoung says, Over the years, I've talked with many earnest believers who sincerely wanted to know, is this where I'm supposed to be? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? These men and women love the Lord. They're not trying to be difficult. They believe God has a path picked out for them. They don't want to miss it and let him down. If the Lord thinks we should move to Nashville, we don't want to wind up in Fargo. If we're supposed to major in chemical engineering, we don't want to study Russian literature. If we were meant for the mission field, we don't want to land in suburbia. Even if that process for the will of God is not biblical, which I will argue that it's not, what can we affirm about the heart of someone who's wrestling with this stuff? What can we say is good about the heart of someone wrestling that stuff through? At least they want to follow the will of God, right? At least they want to please God. What else might we say about that person who who feels that way? What's good here? You want to add anything or you feel good with that? Okay, they they are trying to be God-centered and not self-centered, right? That's good. We can, we can affirm that, right? So we don't need to be judgy-judgy about people who think of this differently than we do. But how can this view, even saying I want to please God by finding the spot God wants me to be, how can that be harmful for a person? It can become an idol. Do you want to expand on that a little bit for us? Okay, so we we start focusing on this hunt for the missing gem of the will of God and we stop knowing God himself. I think that's true. What else would you say? How else could it be harmful? Okay, it's not biblical. You stole Kay's answer. It's not biblical. If it's not biblical, it's not good, you know, for this, right? So, okay. Someone was back in the middle was going to say something. I was going to say, I think it can lead to self-domination, make a decision, and then after it's because you want that, and make that 
So if you make a decision and it doesn't work out smoothly, you can start beating yourself up hard thinking, I must have missed the signals God was giving me. And now I'm in the doghouse for it. How many of you have ever missed signals and wound up in the doghouse? Well, how many of you are husbands? (laughs) Russ says he has missed signals and landed in the doghouse. He does have a travel trailer, so that's that's something to be said. (laughs) Just be glad she lets it stay in the yard, dude. So um, she might get in there and travel would be worse. But do you guys not agree that, that there can be times whenever you feel like if something went wrong, you feel like I must have missed the thing God was trying to tell me. Oh, what a bad Christian I am. So that could be a harmful, dangerous thought, can't it? Okay, so if, if I took a turn down a, down a painful path, I, start, I, I might want to start asking what's God trying to teach me instead of thinking, oh, I'm a bad person for having gone down that path. Fair. Yes? Depends which will we're talking about, doesn't it? Sonia, balance your wills. Could we have gone down a path that was against the will of command? Yes. Could we have gone down a path that's against the will of decree? No. <laughs> And so you're right. And so beating ourselves. But, but now, when you go to, and I'm going to use the term here uh, 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 that DeYoung will use later, if we go to non-moral decisions, there's not a wrong path. And that's the thing that we've got to grasp. And that's what Sonia's aiming at over there. There are good intentions, but if you think that there is a particular secret path that if you'll just get on it, then you'll be in God's will as you walk through your life, that view makes living a godly life far more mysterious than God requires. And it can paralyze you because you'll be afraid to make a decision because you'll be afraid to use wisdom to make a choice. Because there are simple good decisions that you get to make that you don't have to have God tell you what to do. And, and, and if you're looking for, for God to speak a word to you, then you can be paralyzed looking for it instead of doing what's right and obvious in front of you. So, yes, some people think of the will of God. They're so hungry for it because they deeply want to please God. And we love that about them, even if they may be putting themselves in a position that will hurt themselves. A second reason people are deeply interested in the will of God is that some of us are timid. Some of us are timid. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, who will read that for us? Go for it. We need a microphone for you. There you go. I think we didn't make it. (laughs) This is something I had to edit out of the recording later. Okay. You got it?
So again, for all you who are hearing that, you know, Vanessa says, hey, let's, you know, we're being formed in the image of Christ and God uses all sorts of things to bring us into the image of, to conform us to the image of Christ. My first thought there, Vanessa, when you were saying that is, again, Philippians 1, we, are, uh, we, we get to join in the fellowship of his suffering, right? God shapes us through suffering. But there are people who believe that the only good, the only way that God can be, be being t- treating us the way that he really wants for us is if he gives us everything good. Who is it? Who is it that says, oh my goodness, if you're following God, everything should be happy and sweet? Joel Osteen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One said the wolf, one named names. And that's right though, isn't it? <laughs> she ain't wrong. She ain't wrong. How many of you have heard somebody say something like, oh, you are a child of the king and children of the king should have the best of everything. That is a type of teaching that's out there in our world. That is the sort of underpinning of the charismatic movement, especially the name it, claim it, prosperity gospel aspect of the charismatic movement which is so popular in the united states especially among television you know preachers that used to be on your tv way back when right they taught people that if you please god it's all going to come up roses de young says faith in jesus does not guarantee that everything will go our way look at hebrews 11 the chapter sometimes called the, the faith hall of fame you guys know hebrews 11 he says consider just the first three heroes mentioned in that chapter As Bible commentator Bruce Waltke has pointed out, this is so good, Abel had faith and he died. Enoch had faith and he did not die. Noah had faith and everybody else died. (laughs) So just having faith does not guarantee your life or the lives of those around you will be all candy canes and lollipops. Life isn't always fun, and we shouldn't expect it to be. That's a helpful bit of thinking, isn't it? The outcome does not say anything to you as to whether or not you've done right according to God. Because sometimes doing right will get you killed. Can you name one person in the Bible who did things right and got killed for it? Jesus, which of you put Martin Luther in the Bible? That's the new New Testament. <laughs> no wonder he had trouble finding that first Thessalonians passing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, I know. Think about our generation. <laughs> many people, many people grow up with the belief that everything they experience should be personally affirming and fulfilling. Every participant in the game gets a trophy, right? Is that popular today? You betcha. Every kid passes the class if he just shows up. Everybody should have an equal and positive outcome in life, regardless of whether they do the work. Maybe that kind of thinking from our society has actually crept its way into the church so that we think that every one of us should have easy, successful lives if we'll just listen to God guiding our steps. I want you to understand something, though. That kind of thinking is recent. Historically, 
that kind of thinking is recent. Even Martin Luther did not think like that. De Young says this, By and large, my grandparents' generation expected much less out of family life, a career, recreation, and marriage. Granted, this sometimes made them unreflective and allowed for quietly dismal marriages. But my generation is on the opposite end of the spectrum. When we marry, we expect great sex, an amazing family life, recreational adventure, cultural experiences, and personal fulfillment at work. It'd be a good exercise to ask your grandparents sometimes if they felt fulfilled in their careers. They'll probably look at you as if you're speaking a different language. Because you are. Fulfillment was not their goal. Food was. And faithfulness too. Most older folks would probably say something like, I never thought about fulfillment. I had a job. I ate. I lived. I raised my family. I went to church. I was thankful. You guys realize that is the way people thought a couple generations ago. We have left behind that kind of thinking and all of a sudden we're hungry for God to tell us how to get the most personal fulfillment out of every step. Is it possible, friends, that the Disney version of making all your dreams come true has made you expect that God should do it for you too? Have we possibly become so attached to the things of this life that we're looking for God to show us how to get everything we want in the here and now instead of focusing our eyes on eternity? DeYoung says, many of us expect too much out of life. We've assumed that we will experience heaven on earth. And then we get disappointed when earth seems so unheavenly. We have little longing left for our reward in the next life because we've come to expect such rewarding experiences in this life. And when every experience or situation must be rewarding and put us on the road to complete fulfillment, then suddenly the decisions about where we live, what house we buy, what dorm we're in, and whether we go with tile or laminate take on weighty significance. There's just too much writing on every decision. I'm pretty sure most of us would be more fulfilled if we didn't fixate on fulfillment quite so much. Just so you guys know, that was gold. One more reason why people get too hung up on seeking the, quote, will of God is that we have too many choices. DeYoung says, Of the five reasons for our obsession with finding God's will, this may be the most crucial. We have too many choices. I'm convinced that previous generations did not struggle like we struggle trying to find out what God's will is because they didn't have as many choices. In many ways, our preoccupation with the will of God is a Western middle-class phenomenon of the last 50 years. People living on a dollar a day just don't have that many choices to make. Neither did most of our grandparents, let alone their grandparents. A century ago, for the most part, You lived in the place you were born. You did what your mom and dad did. Probably worked on the farm if you were a man and raised kids and worked on the farm if you were a woman. Many of the old people I talked to started working when they were young teenagers and they did anything they could find. They worked for their uncle or dad or started helping with harvest or whatever work was available in town. Ironically, they got more done 
because they didn't have as many things they could do. I imagine the choices were much simpler in other areas as well. A century ago, you would have married one of a dozen or so non-related eligible young people in town. Even wealthier folks were still bound by location because of the difficulty of travel and tradition. Because of cultural values and family heritage, um, I, just, I just read that badly. Even wealthier, wealthier folks were, were bound by location because of the difficulty of travel, and they were bound by tradition because of cultural values and family heritage. They were bound in, in such a way that significantly limited their choices. It used to be that young people felt more of a sense of duty to family, citizenship, and church. Now, few of us can imagine voluntarily limiting our independence and curtailing our options for something as antiquated as duty. Think about that for a second. When you hear somebody talk about moving from one city to the next, how often do you hear them think about the fact that, now I did commit myself to the local church in this city, so maybe I shouldn't move. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? I've very seldom heard pastors talk like that. But years ago, you committed your life to something and you stuck with it. And you might say, yeah, I could do really well over here, but I'm invested in the lives of these people here. Makes sense, doesn't it? This isn't saying that decisions, even heavy decisions, the significant decisions were never a part of the lives of people years ago. They were. But don't miss how significant it is that a century ago, you probably would have never moved more than a few miles from where you're born. I am currently, what are we, mom, 1,200, 1,400 miles away from where I was born? Something like that? My brother's about 2,000 miles from here. You wouldn't have wrestled with options over 17 career paths. You would have never struggled through which of 25 different churches in your town to attend. You attended the one that was there and you strove to make it better. Instead of going, oh, but I like this church except it offended me in this one area, so I'm going to go run around over here and see if I can find someplace else to go. Jump in and make a positive difference, right? I know in the olden days we read stories of wanderers traipsing over the American frontier, Wyatt Earp, Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway. But for every one of those people like that that you read about, there are thousands who live godly lives in their own hometowns. And the reason the tales of a Wyatt Earp and the cowboys in the West running around from here to there stand out is because they were different than the norm. My wife and I lived in Korea. I told you last, last time you know, when we talked about this, every time we came back to the United States, it, it messed our heads up because there were too many options in the stores. Think about entertainment for a second. Real quick, this is a question. Over 50s, first of all, how many of you are over 50? When you were a kid, you're over 50, how many channels did you have to choose from on your television? Four, three, where we were. Yeah. We, we had to, remember we had a little thing with a little motor that would turn the TV antenna so we could aim it at the town 30 miles that way instead of the town 30 miles that way so we could get the, the one channel over the other? Now think about it today. 
How many people spend hours reading through what's available on Netflix and can't pick a show? It happens. It was not hard when there were three or four channels to pick what you were going to watch, was there? I mean, you pretty much knew what you were watching because there weren't options. Decisions were easy. Too many options can paralyze you. And that's true in important decisions too. So a lot of people think, oh, I just want God to tell me which one of these thousand decisions in front of me I should make because there's one perfect one in the 1,500 options in front of me. But not only is our embrace of so many options hard on us, it can really harm our ability to just make a difference where we're planted. How many of you know the term FOMO? What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. Can I tell you something? That is ungodly. FOMO is a sin. You know why? Because you will sit and not do things that are right and good because you're waiting just in case you might get a better option. You guys ever see somebody do it? I mean, you've had somebody do it to you. Your son to... <laughs> it's pretty young for that little sinner. <laughs> Vipers in diapers, baby. Uh, but I've watched people be like, so-and-so invited me over. I haven't told them yes yet because I want to see what other people are doing. That's sin, y'all. Come on. DeYoung says, My fear is that of all the choices people face today, the one they rarely consider is, how can I serve most effectively and fruitfully in the local church? I wonder if the abundance of opportunities to explore today is doing less to help make well-rounded disciples of Christ and more to help Christians avoid long-term responsibility and have less long-term impact. We don't like making decisions because decisions, by definition, limit our options, right? In fact, DeYoung says, decide comes from the Latin word decidere, meaning to cut off. That's why decisions are so hard these days. We can't stand the thought of cutting off any of our options. If we choose A, we feel the sting of not having B and C and D. As a result, every choice feels worse than having no choice at all. And when we do make an important choice, we end up with buyer's remorse, wondering if we're settling for second best. A sin that plagues Christians of today is envy, guys. And it can be true in your heart that is set on looking for better than what you've got. Oh, I'm not content. I should have chose that house and not this house. I should have chose that car, not this car. We always see the grass as greener on the other side. We forget that it needs to be watered and mowed and all the rest. Fear of missing out on the very best, believing that somehow there is a very best, makes us not want to pick something, makes us not want to do things of value. The fifth reason, the fifth reason that we get hung up on hungering for the will of God, all of these are possible. The fifth reason is we're cowards. Some folks want to know God's individual will for their lives because they are naturally fearful. And it may not be that they're afraid of displeasing God. It may be that they want God to direct their paths away from any hardship. If God tells me to buy this particular house, it's got to be a good one, right? 
If God tells me to buy this particular car, if, if, if he tells me to buy this and it breaks down, it's his fault, not my fault. I can't be responsible for having made a bad choice. If God tells me marry this girl, not that girl, at least I know I'm going to have a good marriage. Years ago, and I told you guys this last time too, the mega, mega popular book in Christian circles around the year 2000 was The Prayer of Jabez. Did you actually read it, by the way? You did? Yeah. The whole point of the book is that Christians were missing out on God's best. In fact, the author said, you know what? God has like this whole storehouse of gifts that he just desperately wants to give you, but he can't give them to you because you won't ask. And then he says that the way that you get these gifts is repeating a daily prayer. And the daily prayer includes that God would expand your territories and keep you from having harm or pain. By the way, just so you know, if you have somebody tell you that the way to have a strong Christian life is that if you repeat a certain phrase over and over again, it will force the hand of the deity to give you good things, that is what we call paganism. That is not Christianity. Never has been. But some of us buy interviews like this, right? Some of us think that, man, if I please God in every step I take, God would never let me have pain. Jim Elliot yes, Jim Elliot had a fine ending, didn't he? No, he had lots of pain. Think about some folks in Scripture and ask if this is true. How about, how about Queen Esther? She was a queen of Persia. She won the Miss Persia pageant, even if she didn't want to be in it. Haman got a decree passed that would commit genocide against the Jews. And Mordecai sends Esther a word, says, hey, you, go talk to the king. Esther was afraid. She knew it could lead to her death. Listen to Esther 4, 12 to 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, think about how different that response is and what Esther's going to do compared to the modern charismatic lean to try to hear the quote will of God what would Esther if Esther was part of a charismatic church do I'm not trying to be mean to my charismatic friends by the way but we've got to understand this here what would she do under modern will of God stuff here give me a sign she might throw out a fleece listen for a voice she she might seek a word of confirmation She's going to expect God to give her the path that will guarantee her that she will not be harmed. But Esther 4, 15 and 16, here's what Esther does. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold the fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days. Uh, neither, I missed that wrong. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther asks, yeah, pray for me, but she doesn't say pray for me so I'll know what to do. 
That's not in Esther's prayer. She knows the right thing to do because she knows the difference in right and wrong. And she accepts the fact that her decision, even though it's a right decision, might lead to her dying. De Young says this. Notice what we don't read in this story. We don't read of Esther seeking any divine word from the Lord, though a discerning reader may see God at work in Mordecai's advice to her. She had no promises as to what the future would look like. All she knew is that saving her people was a good thing. God didn't tell her what had happened if she obeyed or exactly what she could do to ensure success. She had to take a risk for God. If I perish, I perish was her courageous cry. Esther didn't wait for weeks or months trying to discern God's will for her life before she acted. She simply did what was right and forged ahead without any special word from God. If the king extended to her the golden scepter, praise the Lord. If he didn't, she died. Esther was more man than most men I know, myself included. Many of us, men and women, are extremely passive and cowardly. We don't take risks for God because we're obsessed with safety, security, and most of all with the future. That's why most of our prayers fall into one of two categories. Either we ask that everything will be fine, or we ask to know that everything will be fine. We pray, we pray for health, travel, jobs, and we should pray for these things. But a lot of prayers boil down to, God, don't let anything unpleasant happen to anybody. Make everything in the world nice for everyone. And when we aren't praying this kind of prayer, we're asking for God to tell us that everything will turn out fine. In Acts 21, Paul does something really similar. Somebody read for us. We got just a second. Acts 21, 10 to 14. All right, microphone coming your way. <laughs> Acts 21, 10 to 14. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Just say a word, it's okay. Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, so get this. Paul knew if he went to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to him? What? Yeah, he's at least, I mean, it's going to be harmful. And Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. So guess what he did? He went to Jerusalem. Was he wrong? Nothing in that text says Paul was wrong. Now, the canon of Scripture was not closed, so God did allow a prophet to tell Paul exactly what was coming. We shouldn't expect that today. But Paul 
desired to go. And when Paul looked at the options, he made a choice. And when Paul made a choice to go, even though going would lead to his harm, everybody said, okay. And nobody here accuses Paul of doing wrong. They just entrusted Paul, including Paul's harm, to the sovereign will of God. There's nothing godly about trying to get God to show you the future so you get an easy life. It is godly to do what God has revealed in his word so you can please God through obedience to his revealed commands. DeYoung goes on to say, Obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live because showing us the future is not God's way. His way is to speak to us in the scriptures and transform us by the renewing of our minds. His way is not a crystal ball. His way is wisdom. We should stop looking for God to reveal the future to us and remove all risk from our lives. We should start looking to God, his character and his promises, and thereby have confidence to take risks for his name's sake. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. He has planned out and works out every detail of our lives, the joyous days and the difficult, all for our good. Ecclesiastes 7.14 tells us about that. Because we have confidence in God's will of decree, we can radically commit ourselves to his will of desire without fretting over a hidden will of direction. What's it mean? It means that we're free not to have God, not to look for God to tell us the future. We're free to obey God and everything he's revealed in his word. We're free to trust him with the future. You're free to take a risk. You're free to make a sensible decision about what to do next. You're free to make a mistake in choices that you make without it being sin. You are free to make life choices without fearing that you're going to somehow step out of the center of God's personal will for you. Because so long as you're obeying God's commands in Scripture, you are free. You're free to have an easier or a harder life. You're free to be in the green grass or in the valley of the shadow. God knows where he's going to take you in your life, but no, he's not telling you. DeYoung says, are you feeling directionally challenged by this? Don't despair. God promises to be your sun and your shield and to carry you and protect with his strong right arm. So we can stop pleading with God to show us the future and start living and obeying like we're confident that he holds the future. And that, with one minute left, is chapter 3. Final thoughts before we wrap up. Encouraging, confusing, fascinating, obvious. I hope so. We've got to be careful not to be the people who become paralyzed because in a decision that's in front of us, we realize that the decision might cause pain. I'll give you just one. My wife intentionally chose to marry an idiot. Her choice in men is one of her weakest points. You understand that, don't you? Even even taking my own self-deprecating silliness out of it. Do you guys realize how much pain 
Mitzi chose to have in her life by choosing to say yes to marry me? Do you think it's easy to be married to a blind guy? How many in your family, the husband does the driving? How many would you would like it if that was never an option for you? How many in your family, the husband does the yard work, cut the bush out of the backyard? How many of you would think, that stinks if my husband can't really do that? And she doesn't want me with sharp objects that spin. (laughs) How many of you would, you know, how many of you wives appreciate a husband who can fix things around the house? That's not my skill set. She made a choice that, you know, in making that choice, cut off from herself several things that could have been a lot easier. Did she sin? No. I hope that there are benefits that outweigh that. I can't promise you that they are. (laughs) You can ask her some other time. Not in front of me, please. Um, But sometimes we choose things like that, right? How about the guy that married uh, Johnny Erickson Tata? Did he violate the will of God by choosing a woman who was going to cost so much for him to take care of? No. He honors the Lord by how he cares for that woman, even though it costs him a ton. And he would tell you it's worth it. Stop thinking about the will of God as the thing he'll show you so that you get it easy. Let's pray. We'll be done. Lord, thank you. The stuff's good. And I pray that we will be people who deeply long to know your command in your word and who are then bold enough to trust you and make choices to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.